Well, once again, great to see all of you today. Glad that you are here with us. Today is Palm Sunday, of course. Most of you are well aware of the calendar. Uh, This is the beginning of what many people call Holy Week or Passion Week. Uh, the, The eight days that start with Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem in his final presentation of himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah King, and then ending with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus on the third day after his crucifixion. Palm Sunday is so named, I think you probably know, because the gospel record describes Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with the crowds throwing down their cloaks in the roadway and cutting palm branches to wave and lay down on the road to make a royal path for their Messiah to enter the city of Jerusalem, as was just read to us there from Matthew 21 a few moments ago. Thus we call it Palm Sunday. And I want to look at a number of scriptures with you today based on Matthew 21. But we're going to start today, Gospel of Mark chapter 1, where we have been uh, for a number of weeks preaching our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're just not even quite to the end of chapter 1 yet, which you know is probably typical for me. So anyway, we're going to look at some more, uh, some more scripture here, some interesting thoughts relating to Palm Sunday. Mark chapter 1, remember that Mark is writing the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Gospel. And so he simply makes a passing statement uh, in, uh, in verse uh, uh, 14 of Mark chapter 1. He says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. And his passing statement, of course, after John was put in prison, doesn't record any of the background information. But other places in the Gospels tell us that Herod Antipas, Herod was a, as a title, several different Herods in the New Testament. But Herod Antipas, in typical ungodly fashion, he had had an affair with his half-brother's wife, who also happened to be his niece. Uh, Herod well, talked her into leaving her half-brother, uh, his half-brother Philip, and, and marrying him. And John the Baptist, in true prophetic fashion, had, uh, had denounced Herod Antipas and confronted him for his sin. And that really made his new wife angry, and so Herod arrested John and threw him in prison to appease his wife. John was later beheaded due to another scheme of Herod's wife, but that's a sermon for another day. Uh, So after John was imprisoned, as verse 14 says, Jesus began his ministry in a very serious way. John was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus, alerting the people to the soon arrival of the Messiah. Now, Now Jesus picks up that same message and he continued preaching what we call the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus says he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God there in verse 14, verse 15, saying this, uh, the, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So how are we to understand the kingdom? When Jesus says he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. How are we to understand the kingdom? Kingdom theology is very, very much wrapped up in the events of Palm Sunday. But theologians have a lot of different perspectives on kingdom theology. 
this Palm Sunday, I want to present to you a message on kingdom theology. The kingdom was the message of John the baptizer. It was the first message of the Lord Jesus. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. So how are we to understand the kingdom? Well, there have been many huge volumes written on kingdom theology. Dozens of books with hundreds of pages each. So it's impossible to condense it all into one Sunday message. So I am going to try to make a, a complex topic as simple as I can make it. And I, and I still want to do reasonable justice to it. And the reason why this should be important to you is because if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a part in the kingdom of God. Being separated from the kingdom of God is a place that I hope you don't want to be. That there are only two sides in this great cosmic war for the souls of men, this, this eternal battle for truth. You're either in God's kingdom or you're in Satan's kingdom. There's no, there's no neutral territory in this war. And so let me just, uh, just briefly uh, explain a couple things to you of, of what I understand the, the scripture to be teaching regarding the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God can be understood very simply this way. It is the sovereign rule of God in his universe. It's the sovereign rule of God in his universe. He made everything. He owns everything. He oversees everything. He is aware of everything that's happening. Ephesians 1 tells us that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He is the king and his universe is his kingdom. But the kingdom of God expresses itself, as I understand the New Testament, in at least three phases, at least three dimensions to the kingdom of God. The, the, the first one is this. It is a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom that is spiritually existing right now. It is a reality right now. You may remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was under arrest before Pilate. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's in John 18. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight you. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Right now, God is working out his will for this planet through his human followers. The Holy Spirit of God indwells us and guides us and helps us. And we represent the Lord Jesus Christ in spiritual ways. You may remember Jesus in John chapter 3 telling Nicodemus that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. Meaning born from above, meaning born spiritually. We are spiritually dead in our sin, in our natural state. We must be born spiritually to be alive in Christ. This is a spiritual kingdom. We do not start wars in the name of Jesus. Some people have in history. Okay, but Bible-believing people truly following the Lord Jesus, we do not start wars in the name of Jesus. We do not overthrow governments in the name of Jesus. We may suffer as followers of Jesus at the hands of the ungodly, and we do not try to blow them up in retaliation. Artists may get government grants to take crucifixes and put them in glasses filled with urine and take photographs of it and sell it as art and be funded by the government. You may remember that actually literally happened about 20 years ago. When those things happen, we do not riot and burn cars and break windows on storefronts in protest. We pray. We preach the Word of God. 
we witness about the saving grace and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. Because currently, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. The, the second phase of God's kingdom is what we call the millennial kingdom. This is the coming kingdom of Jesus on this earth. The spiritual kingdom is invisible. The millennial kingdom will be very visible. Millennium comes from a Latin word that means 1,000. Revelation says that Jesus Christ will rule and reign on this earth from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. We accept the Bible for what it says. We believe that it is a literal 1,000 years. This kingdom obviously is future. It hasn't happened yet. There are enormous numbers of Old Testament prophecies regarding this kingdom. This is the kingdom, by the way, that the first century Jews were looking for. They missed the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, first being the humble, suffering servant who would die and rise again, and then at a future time he would be glorified in his kingdom. They missed the part that suffering would come before glory. So they were looking for the coming of the Messiah to establish his earthly kingdom. But the, the glory of the earthly kingdom is yet to come. And all the promises of the Old Testament that are going to be, that are planned to be fulfilled in the land of Israel and worldwide righteousness and salvation and all of those elements of Old Testament millennial prophecies, they will come to fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. That's coming in the future. That's not yet. But we who are a part of today's spiritual kingdom will be a part of the millennial kingdom when it comes. And then the third aspect or the third phase of God's kingdom we call his eternal kingdom. That's the everlasting kingdom that will follow the millennial kingdom. The new heaven and the new earth that Revelation describes are where the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will be. Where we who have been saved by the grace of God will dwell in the presence of God forever. And Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The spiritual kingdom becomes the millennial kingdom, which then becomes the everlasting kingdom. And there's a lot of judgment on earth and outpoured wrath from God in between those phases of the kingdom as they are being revealed. But the spiritual kingdom becomes the millennial kingdom, which then will become the everlasting kingdom. Now that's a very simplified version. Some guys have written 800-page books on this topic that I just described to you in about seven minutes, okay? And there's a whole bunch of them that are just that big. So that, that is a very simplified version, but hopefully you can hang your thoughts on those three dimensions, those three phases of the kingdom, as you read and study the scriptures. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to his kingdom. How do you get into the kingdom? Jesus began preaching it there. Repent and believe. You put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You repent of your sin. You believe the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, who he really was, and what he was about to do. That is the message that Jesus began to preach as he initiated his earthly ministry. As I said a moment ago, the Jewish people were, were looking for the millennial kingdom. They didn't know it by that name because the length of the kingdom wasn't revealed until the end of the first century, nearly 70 years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, uh, when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. But it was those Old Testament prophecies 
those those or that phase of the kingdom that they were focused on what we call the millennial kingdom Jesus continually reminded them that the kingdom was not all about them yes they were a central part of the kingdom prophecies but they were not all of it what is so exciting about that is that the kingdom prophecies include you and me because we are going to be a part of the millennial kingdom just as we are a part of God's spiritual kingdom today. But when Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem on this day that we call Palm Sunday, he was reminding everyone present that he is indeed the king and he is for everyone. His kingship is not ethnic or tribal or national. It is international and global and universal. And right now on this first Palm Sunday is that we just, the Don Terrell just, just read about a few moments ago. The, the, right now the, the kingdom is humble and welcoming and seeking and forgiving and patient. Jesus will in a few days from this, this event we, we just, that we read in, in Matthew 21. Jesus will shed his own blood to save all who will accept his free gift of forgiveness and come over to his side. And until he comes again, that is the wonder, that is the amazement of his kingship. He saves sinners who repent and turn to him. But I want you to think about with me today and see Jesus in your mind's eye on that first Palm Sunday. I want you to hear what he says, because he certainly can win you over. He certainly can save you. Our reading this morning, as it was from Matthew 21, we're not going to reread that passage. I know you remember the main parts, but in that passage, we'll I'll refer back to it a time or two, although we won't read it again today. But there, there are four ways that Jesus declares his kingship in this triumphal entry. All of them have Jewish roots. He was a Jew. He was fulfilling Jewish prophecies of a coming king and Messiah. But all of them are much bigger than Jewish roots. Remember this gospel message is, it is going to end. The whole gospel message is going to end with the words, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Jesus knows that he is king over all nations, not just Israel. So I want you to watch with me as we think through some of these things as Jesus declares himself to be the king of the Jews and the king of the nations. First turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Dontrell mentioned that in his devotional. Zechariah chapter 9. You may remember from the story read in Matthew 21, Jesus said to his disciples, Go and find the foal of a donkey, the colt of a donkey. And untie him. He told him where to go. He knew, of course, Jesus knows everything. He's omniscient. He's the omniscient God. Told them where to go to find the donkey. And, he, and if you, as you start to untie him, if somebody says to you, which they obviously would, Hey, what are you doing with my donkey? Tell them that, the, that your master has need of him. And he'll let you have it. And that's exactly what happened. He comes, Jesus gets on the back of the donkey, he rides in, in, into Jerusalem. Now I want to remind you again that, that the first century Jewish people grew up from the time they were little kids. They grew up listening to Old Testament prophecies being written. 
When we look at most of us today, our understanding of the Old Testament is probably on a pre-kindergarten level. That is not true of the people in first century Israel. They understood the Old Testament. It was read to them week after week after week after week. They, they grew up around the Old Testament. There was no New Testament, of course, and you know that. And so the, the people of God were reading all of these prophecies, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Very important thing, because Zechariah has all kinds of messianic passages in it. And in, in Zechariah chapter 9, look at verse 9, Zechariah 9, 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's another expression for Israel. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, meaning righteous, and having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, which Matthew quotes in Matthew 21. He quotes Zechariah 9.9. The people see him coming, see the Lord Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, and they start shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, to the, to, to the Son of David. They are basically proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. They know this prophecy. The Messiah is going to ride into Jerusalem on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. But look at verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, meaning no war, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So yes, Jesus was the Messiah for the Jewish people, but Jesus was also the King for everyone. He said He's going to speak peace to the nations. And His desire will go from sea to sea, from the river, usually as a reference to the Euphrates, to the, to the ends of the earth. So the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, he declares himself to be king by riding on a donkey. Why does he want to do this on a donkey? Why can't he go? Uh, well, why can't he come riding in on a horse or so forth? Well, he's not, he, of course, he, as he comes into town, he's not riding on a horse because, as many of you know, I've preached it to you before, a horse in their era was an animal of war. If Jesus rode into town, on a horse, the Roman army that was stationed right next to the temple would immediately be put on red alert and they would be out for a charge. Because he, it would be seen as a sign of war, as a sign of aggression, as a sign of insurrection against the Roman government. But Jesus says, I'm not coming on a war horse with a sword and a rod of iron. I'm not coming to destroy. I'm coming to save. This time, today is the day of salvation. I've told you before, I mean, yeah, yeah, is this the, the horse is this animal of war. Because in the Old Testament, the, the strength of your army was determined by the number of your fighting men, the number of your chariots, and the number of your horses, which were used almost exclusively for war. The donkey was an animal of agriculture. Agricultural prosperity was one of the blessings of peace. So Jesus comes in peace this time. Now next time, we know from the book of Revelation, when he comes at his second coming, he's riding a white horse. And he'll be coming for judgment. But this time, he comes riding a donkey. Righteous and humble, this passage says, speaking peace to the nations. 
So that's declaration number one. Jesus very intentionally displays the fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9, and 10, and he declares his humble, righteous plan for Jewish people and for international souls. He is inviting us to receive him. But look, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 56. If we were to go back there to Matthew 21, you would see that the next thing that happens... When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he rode in on the donkey. When he gets to Jerusalem, the very next thing that takes place is he goes into the temple, he makes himself a little cord, and and he drives out all of the money changers. He drives out all of the people who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money of, of the money changers. He ran them out. He said, "What were the money changers doing there?" Well, people came from all over the land, all over the Roman Empire, really, uh, for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. They would bring offerings with them. But, of course, when they were there in the land of Judea, they had to use Judean money. They had to use Jewish money. They came from other parts of the Roman Empire. They didn't always have the right currency. And and, And sometimes they traveled a long way. They couldn't bring their lamb. They couldn't bring their, their offering with them. So what they would do is they would come to the outer court of the temple, and there would be a whole bunch of guys out there who were, who were entrepreneurs, and they figured, hey, this is a great way to make some bucks. And they would exchange money and put it in the Judean coins that they wanted at the temple. they say, I've got this little, uh, this, this little uh, small corral here. I've got 15 lambs here to sell. I'll sell you this lamb for X number of money, or for X number of dollars. You want to give an offering to the temple? Oh, but you've got Roman coins. I'll give you some Jewish coins. We'll make the money exchange. And so they were exchanging money and selling offerings. That's what they were doing there. It sounds like a nice service to people who are traveling, But unfortunately, as is often the case, uh, we're always tempted to kind of turn into crooks, aren't we? And that's what happened to these guys. And so Jesus comes in, he turns over the tables. I mean, he just created Bedlam for a while. He ran them out of the temple. Nobody fought him. You know, this idea that we always see Jesus, you know, in all these Middle Ages paintings looking, looking like he's, he's quietly looking up to heaven and smiling and... You know what? Jesus went in there with a little cord and he ran them out of the temple and nobody fought back. He, was, uh, he had grown up being a carpenter. I think, he, I think he was pretty strong. In fact, when you see of what he endured on the cross and what he tolerated on the cross, he was not the scrawny little weakling that Middle Ages painters painted him out to be. He was a man's man if there ever was one. And Jesus comes in and, and, and he drives all the money changers out of the temple. And to explain what he's doing, he quotes from Isaiah 56. He says to them, you can read it in Matthew 21, he says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Very interesting. But I want you to look, if you would, at verse, uh, at verse 6 and verse 7. And verse 8, here in Isaiah 56. Again, a great prophecy of the Messiah. Isaiah 56, verses 6, 7, and 8. 
Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and hold fast My covenant, even them I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Very important phrase there. That's why we've got our cut steel sign hanging over our front door here at the church. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God, verse 8, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. In other words, this prophecy in Isaiah 56 is that God is going to, yes, He's going to save some Jewish people, but He's going to save a whole bunch of other people too. And my house, He said, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the whole context of this passage is not just Jewish, it is global. And, and, and when, when Jesus chooses a prophetic word to interpret His actions in the temple, He chooses one that emphasizes the fact that His kingship is for all nations. It's for you. It's for me. Jesus Christ is opening His Father's house to us for prayer, and He planned from the very beginning to gather others besides just people of Israel. So Jesus declares that He's the King. By riding into town on a donkey, he declares he's a king by cleansing the temple. Then thirdly, look just a few pages back to Isaiah 35. He declares he's, he's the king by, by healing. If you were to read back in Matthew 21, that passage we read a few moments ago, it says, after he drove out the money changers, after he cleansed the temple... A whole bunch of people started coming to Jesus. And it says in, in, in Matthew 21, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now I want you to visualize this. I know it's hard for us to visualize in our culture, in our time, in our place here. That there are literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who flood Jerusalem for Passover. It isn't just the residents. There are thousands of people who come from other places. And, and, and it must have been just this, this incredible impact that Jesus is in the most public place in the whole city, the temple. And, and right on the temple mount, with thousands of people around, Jesus begins healing blind people and people who can't walk, people who are crippled, people who are paralyzed. Not people with headaches and backaches and poor hearing and things you can't see, as, as many do today or claim to do today, but visible, publicly known disabilities. This was a public declaration, a public demonstration that he was indeed the Messiah. And Jesus has already talked about this. When John the Baptist was in jail, which we mentioned just a moment ago, when he knew his time was coming and he figured Herod would maybe getting ready to kill him, John was probably wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah? I mean, I was supposed to be the forerunner of the Messiah. I wonder if he's really the one or if I should look for someone else. I mean, you know, you're locked up in jail and your mind plays tricks on you. And even a godly great man like John, I mean, Jesus himself said, there's nobody walking this earth greater than John the Baptist. 
And yet John sends this messenger to Jesus. And he says, and he says, are you really the coming king of Israel? Are you the Messiah? Or should I look for somebody else? Jesus sends word back to John in, in the prison. He said, go and report to John what you've been seeing and hearing. The blind are receiving sight and the lame are walking. In other words, Jesus says, yes, I am the coming king. Now, why does the healing of the blind and the lame in the temple come after coming into Jerusalem on a donkey mean I'm the coming king? Why does it mean that? Because in Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet describes the coming kingship of Jesus just like this. Look at verse 4. Isaiah 35, verse 4. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing, for the water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus was fulfilling, again, another Old Testament prophecy, telling the people, I am the Messiah. I rode into Jerusalem on a donkey just like Zechariah said I would. I have cleansed the temple just like Isaiah said in chapter 56. Of course, there weren't chapters and verses, and you understand that. I mean, people knew exactly. And Jesus quotes the verse. Yeah, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And the scripture says, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Then Jesus begins healing. And who knows how many people? Dozens? Maybe hundreds? It's amazing. So, so as this amazing event is going on, there's, there's another incredible thing that, that, that happens. Is that Jesus declares he's king by his relationship to children. First, the crowds are spreading their cloaks and palm branches on the road in front of him. That's what they did when they were receiving kings in the Old Testament. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna, salvation to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are words from Psalm 118. And then children, and the word there in the, uh, in the Greek text there in Matthew 21, implies kind of pre-teen, upper elementary, middle school age group, the, the 10 to 12 age group. Quite possibly they are there in Jerusalem to celebrate their first Passover. They are there all around the Temple Mount. They see what's going on. They saw Jesus ride into town on the donkey. They saw him run out the money changers. They saw him healing the blind and the lame. And, and, and all these kids start, start shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! It's the Son of David! They recognize it's the Messiah. The Messiah is here! The Messiah is here! And the chief priests, they get, they get angry. They get upset. They look at Jesus and say, Do you, Don't you hear what these kids are saying about you? Why, why, how, how dare you let them call you the, the Messiah? What, what, what kind of man are you accepting this kind of worship from children? You know, you're, you're corrupting the minds of the youth, telling them that you're a Messiah. That's all kind of inherent in what they're accusing him of. He says, don't you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, yes, yeah, matter of fact, I do. And guess what? Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have perfected praise? That's in Psalm 8. Let's take a look at that, if you would. Psalm 8. Believe it or not, we're getting close to the end. If you feel warm, hang on. Take a deep breath. I'm almost done. 
Jesus answers their question when they say, don't you hear what these children are saying? And he answers them with this astonishing quote from Psalm 8. He says in verse 2, out of the mouths of Psalm 8, verse 2, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained a strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Very interesting thought. But you know what? Psalm 8 is all about God. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, our Lord. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai. How excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So don't, don't miss that. Jesus receives the praises of children and then explains it by quoting a psalm where children are praising God because the enemies of God won't praise God. The enemies of God won't praise Him. And so God has ordained children to praise Him. And so as, as these young people, as these 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds are, are there at the temple shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, and the chief priest get mad, Jesus says, Hey, you, did you forget Psalm 8? Have you forgotten that, yeah, I mean, I am God. I am the Messiah. Yes, I hear what they're saying. Hosanna to the Son of David. That's me. I accept their praise. I receive their praise. And God has ordained them to praise me because you won't. So here we are, Palm Sunday. This great invitation. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. Jesus drives out the money changers in the temple, fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. Jesus declares he's the king by, by performing massive numbers of healings of, of the blind and the lame, exactly the healings that the scripture says the Messiah would perform when he came. And by his relationship to these children, accepting their, their worship, he is declaring himself as king four times. One, two, three, four, all in the same day, all fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, all declaring himself just days before he observes the Passover with his disciples, just days before he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's giving Israel and everyone around one last glimpse of Jesus as the humble, suffering servant, as the Messiah. Because when he comes out of the grave, it's going to be glory now. So here's the Palm Sunday invitation. Jesus came the first time, and he's coming again as the king over all the kings. He proved it by fulfilling the prophecies about himself. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of all the nations. He's the king of nature. He's the king of the universe. Today, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Until he comes again, today is the day of grace and mercy and forgiveness and patience. He still rides a donkey and not yet a war horse carrying a sword. But when he comes again to establish his visible righteous dominion, he will not look like the Palm Sunday king. He will rule in glory and power, and he will have a rod of iron to use against those who oppose his rule. 
So today he is ready to save all who receive him as Savior and Lord and King. I don't know where you stand with the Lord this Sunday, but I would encourage you, come to Jesus this Palm Sunday. Accept Him, know Him, love Him, live your life in allegiance to Him. Be absolutely sure you are in His kingdom. As Jesus told Nicodemus so long ago in John 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Where do you stand with the Lord this Palm Sunday? Is He your King? Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed again with Your majesty, with Your power, with Your knowledge. Of course, Lord, You know all those Old Testament prophecies. You were here to fulfill them. And You did. Right to the very end. Declaring Yourself to be the Messiah. The one who's coming in His kingdom and one day in His glory to rule and reign on this earth. But today, Lord, You're our, you're our Palm Sunday King. You ride in on a donkey in peace and grace and mercy. You provide comfort and peace and healing and forgiveness. All those things, Lord, You, you bring to us. And you rule as the sovereign king of this universe. Today in a spiritual way, but one day in a very visible way. Lord, as we celebrate in these next days and coming up next weekend, the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Again, the final proof of who you were. Conquered death and conquered the grave and defeated Satan and pushed back the curse of sin. Lord, you are the King. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your daily mercies. Lord, we commit to you, every person here this morning, you know their hearts, you know where they stand with you, you know what they need to do. May we who know Christ as our Savior be lifted up and just rejoicing as to who we are, who our Savior is, who we are in Christ. What a joy it is, Lord, to belong to you. Thank you for these who are here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.